Welcome to the Actors Wish podcast. My name is Sarah Hayward Rahimova, and I am an international actress, writer, and teacher. Today, let me be your scene partner. Let this podcast be your laboratory. And in this space, let your wish run free. I know you're ready to peel your layers, take risks, and open yourself to new levels of artistic discovery. Consider this your weekly dose of inspiration, technique, and community where actors support one another. Together, we can explore our wishes beyond the classroom, beyond the audition room, beyond the stage and the screen, and cultivate a rich, vibrant, ongoing creative life. Let's turn down our brains, trust our bodies, activate our inner resources, and find joy in the process. Together, let's take the leap from actor to artist. Hello, 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 creative rebels, actors, artists. Welcome to today's episode. Oh my gosh, am I so excited. We have a very special guest today. All our guests are so wonderfully special, but today I get to speak with a role model and an actress I've admired for five years and have followed her trajectory and it's just felt like such an honor and privilege and a dream coming to fruition of sorts to have this exchange of ideas, of experiences, of energy, of emotions, of hope. I'm so, so excited. I saw Lenise Antoine Shelley perform years ago at Stratford Festival in Canada and have been spellbound ever since, and I imagine you will be too. So <laughs> get excited. One of the many, many, many gifts of this podcast, I feel like I'm still unwrapping them, is not only connecting with all of you wonderful listeners and collaborators and members of the ensemble, but also getting to chat and connect with my friends, my colleagues, my mentors, my role models, and keep poking and prodding at our profession from different angles to learn and refine and create and grow together and take our own dreams and successes as well as the dreams and successes of the collective and the craft and move it forward. And one of the other vital elements to this uh, is releasing the notion of competitiveness and moving towards collaboration. So it is an absolute thrill to share in the resonance of other actors' journeys because we're so often pitted against one another but the more room we make for collaboration, the more we'll see how we're all connected, how many similarities we share, and we can inspire the other and create amazing new projects and stages and spaces to evolve. There's, there's, there's room for all of us to, to fly. So before this episode, I never thought that Linus and I would share so many artistic commonalities and so it was a completely delightful surprise to pull down the barriers because I just really knew her from social media or from afar and 
a pure, genuine thrill to open more deeply into the experience of the other. And so here is a little bit about Lenise and her many, many talents. <laughs> Lenise Antoine Shelley is a multi-passionate Haitian actress, director, playwright, podcast host, and visual artist. You may know her from Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Empire, Discovery World, and Stratford Shakespeare Festival's Macbeth HD. She has had the immense pleasure of studying abroad six times while achieving a BFA from Cornish College of the Arts, MFA from Art Machat at Harvard University, Certificate in Classical Theatre from the British American Drama Academy in Oxford, England. Additionally, she was nominated for the Princess Grace Award, nominated for a Jeff Award, nominated Best Leading Actress by the BTAA, and was Stratford Shakespeare Festival's Chicago Fellow in 2016. As a director, she served as Victory Gardens Theatre's Director's Inclusion Initiative Fellow 2019. Oh, wow. This is such a dynamic episode. It's so powerful and robust. We hit so many topics. We travel on so many different emotional avenues. And as Lenith so beautifully articulates, there's so much hope in these conversations. We have been gifted, Lenise and I, but also you. We've been gifted with our art and our voice and our strength to change and shift the paradigm and shift the world. So thank you for tuning in and showing up and working on yourself and joining us in the ongoing conversation as we continue to peel layers of our own selves, which in turn propels shifts around the globe. So let us keep showing up keep challenging ourselves, keep evolving in our art and in our lives. And I know you're going to have so many takeaways. So be sure to reach out on Instagram. Once you listen, take a screenshot of this episode, tag Lenise and I in your stories at Lantuanez. I'll have that written in the show notes and at Serabanda. And let us know what shook you, what moved you, what profound and long-term takeaways and shift you are going to incorporate into your own life, a, a, a pivot in perspective, all of it. We are so eager to see what hit certain notes within you. And I will have all of Lenise's amazing contacts in the show notes. Be sure to visit her website. Be sure to check her out on Facebook. Be sure to follow her on Instagram. And be sure absolutely to listen to her podcast, When They Were Young, Amplifying Voices of Adoptees. And be sure to check her out on Instagram at young adoptee. I will have all of that in I will, blah, blah, blah. I did the warm up she suggests, but I get too excited. Uh, I will have all of that in the show notes. And without further ado, let us raise the curtains on this episode. Simply cannot wait to hear how it resonates for you. Vinimania, Machali. Enjoy. Denise, welcome. <laughs> I am Yay. so thrilled you're here. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This is a wild dream. This was a pipe dream because I saw you perform 
nearly five summers ago in Stratford mm -hmm. at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. And it was in the Aeneid <laughs> and I was floored. I was like, who is this incredible magnetic performer? What? And then I did what any young actor fan does. I found you on social media and followed you. <laughs> kind of a followed your trajectory. <laughs> I love that. Up to this moment. <laughs> so super fan, super fan here. Uh, but as I am also getting to know you along with our listeners, the more intimate side, right? Like the social mm -hmm. media kind of actor persona. That's a very specific part of a person, but mm -hmm. uh, we would love it if you could open the doors to your story, to your journey, to, to let us peek in a little further with whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. Just how you ended up in the arts, if you always knew you were an actress, how the little seed of, like you just spoke about, what if inside you brought you to this moment? Mm -hmm. Well, I always knew that I had a need to express myself and I didn't quite know what medium that would take form in. And at a young age, I had such a vivid imagination and my mom didn't know quite what to do with me. And fortunately the arts help you to, to really hone and polish and kind of uh, restrain your imagination in a way that's, that makes it uh, easier day to day, you know, it, it doesn't run rampant like it used to when I was a kid. And so she put me in the arts early on. I, I studied dance, I studied ballet and all of that. And then when I discovered African dance in high school, I was like, forget ballet. And I burned <laughs> my tutu and, <laughs> and I was like, I am about this gyration, you know, give me some of that. And it spoke to me on a deeper level because I'm an inter-country ad adoptee. And uh, some people say transracial, but I prefer inter-country, intercultural, interracial adoptee. I was born in Haiti, grew up in Northern California, and I grew up in a white family. And so I didn't have any black person to model, like how does one move through the world as a BIPOC person? And so when I encountered African dance, a lot of it was Senegalese, Ghanaian, uh, Congolese, South African. Mm -hmm. I was able to see myself in these people in this community and they just mm -hmm. gobbled me up and really embraced me for who I was and told me that I was beautiful and, and showed me that I was beautiful, which is huge for a young girl. And when I was in high school, I always had an old soul. I was such a wet blanket growing up. I was the designated driver. I wasn't having sex. I was just like the staunch Christian, you know? And I was like, I'm not going to do anything to disgrace myself, right? And I ended up going to a performing arts high school in Vancouver called Vancouver School of Arts and Academics. And from there, I went to Cornish College of the Arts and that's where my world blew open. Uh, I realized that as an artist, who you are is reflected upon your art and you have to be cognizant of that because if you are tightly wound up, if you are one that is repressed, one that does not know how to fully let loose your expression, 
you won't be able to harness your expression when you want to. And so it took some just freeing of my spirit in undergrad and just uh, exploration of like sexuality, exploration of artistry that that enabled me to become the the fully open and available artist that I am today. And I encourage Mm -hmm. artists to just like really allow yourself to absorb the world and not Mm -hmm. imbue everything with your sense of judgment or religion or beliefs, but just see it for what it is. And and then you can truly mirror it. So it was a, a long road in that respect, but Um, Once I graduated from Cornish, I immediately got an internship at Milwaukee Repertory Theater. Within three months, I was asked to be a resident acting company member. And then I was with them for five years as a company member. And I was the first black uh, company member, the only one in my 20s. It was a really rough ride (laughs) being in Milwaukee in that kind of environment. But I learned a great deal. And then I moved to Chicago and I studied at British American Drama Academy in Oxford, England for a summer and that blew my mind again. It was all of these international uh, experiences and exposure that really crafted who I became as an artist. And then in 2016, I got the Chicago Fellowship uh, for Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And that was a dream come true. And it took me like, I think about almost nine years to manifest that because I had uh, I had peeped Stratford Festival because I played opposite Scott um, Scott in Julius Caesar at Shakespeare Santa Cruz I was his Portia and Mm -hmm. um, and then I was his Titania to his bottom and (laughs) that sounds weird I know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know you know what I mean (laughs) I I hope I hope you all know a Midsummer Night's Dream because those are character names, but um, <laughs> it isn't like an ointment on top of a bottom or something like that. Um, but but I then was obsessed with Stratford Shakespeare Festival, and and then I got the opportunity. Everything started to align itself because I was played playing Lady M at Chicago Shakespeare. Uh, theater when they came around to do auditions for Stratford Festival. And uh, and so in the audition, I, I could say, yeah, that's me on the poster. And they were like, what? You know, <laughs> it was such a great moment. And, uh, and they flew me up to Stratford for the callback. And it was just one of those moments where, and I, and they're rare, these moments, these intuitive, just, just knowings that if you show up for yourself in this moment, everything will unravel as it needs to be, you know? And, and so in that audition, I was just like, I just need to show up for myself. Mm-hmm. And they, they wanted, I think five monologues. I had like seven and, and I had this dress. And that, one of the things with auditions, like I get dressed for auditions. <laughs> like it's so much fun. My favorite part about acting is dressing up. So for auditions, many a times casting directors comment on what I'm wearing because I just like, I get it done because it's so much fun, right? And if you don't get the part, at least they remember you for something fabulous and something you can actually control. So 
it was just an amazing adventure being in Stratford and studying uh, amongst other Canadians and, and then playing in Macbeth, all my sons in Aeneid was just beyond my expectations because when I accepted that contract, they did not tell me what role I had. We had to accept the contract just as is. And then we would eventually audition for our role in the season. So it was a huge leap of faith. I was like, I could literally go from playing playing uh, Lady M, uh, just being cast as Cleopatra and turning that down for Stratford to like playing like a small, not that there's anything wrong with small roles, but just playing a non-speaking role in a, in a chorus or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, like, I think I wept or something when I got my, got my offer because all I wanted, I was like, everything will be okay if I get a witch in Macbeth, everything will be okay, you know? And I did, and I was like, yes. And then to get Aeneid and all my sons was just like, I, I mean, I have yet to surpass that kind of joy and jubilation, but Stratford definitely was a defining moment in my career. Wow, I'm sitting here like biting my fingers. I'm just so, <laughs> this is fascinating to be on the other side of the process, right? Because I mm-hmm. saw you in a final result kind of space on stage in a production. My sister went, saw the Macbeth production. I didn't, we had to leave. Um, but I, we saw Anita on the last day and I was so oh. glad uh, <laughs> that we, we saw it. But so you studied in the conservatory before before mm-hmm. you were propelled onto stage, right? The Birmingham Conservatory? Correct, yes. Okay. We we were all part of the Birmingham Conservatory. There were about, I think, 13 of us, 12 of us. And we studied with master teachers from all over the world for five months. And then they're essentially grooming us for the company for the season. And mm-hmm. uh, we even went to, they sent us like fully, you know, uh, funded to Scotland to study with Kristen Linkletter for 10 days, which was like another just revelatory event in my life. Uh, So, so yeah, we experienced a lot of different teachers, a lot of different techniques and, um, but the highlight truly was meeting Kristen Linkletter. (laughs) Wow. I mean, it's fascinating to hear about Strat. Like, I, I'm from Montreal. I was, I grew up in Canada, but I moved out to the West Coast in the States when I was young. So I grew up with the idea that Stratford is the epitome of of Canadian theater. Like, that's the yeah. home you want to end up in. And so, a part of me has just always been pulled towards there. And perhaps maybe someday I will be there. Who knows? Yeah. But but to hear your process in this and the kind of faith you had to have and surrender at the same time. But how was it moving through more of a repertory ensemble space? Because the actors you were with, they play, you all play different roles in different shows, correct? So you got to develop that bond, that collaborative ensemble over the course of your time there. Mm-hmm. That is correct. It was the thing about the thing about Stratford is that it's 
ginormous. And it's unlike other repertory theaters because they have four venues. They have a company of around a hundred artists and that they're just actors. And then you're not even counting the designers and the crew and all of that. And so it's just, it's a behemoth of a institution and it's the largest theater on the continent. And I had, I had once I figured out that Stratford existed because we, I'm, I'm Haitian American uh, residing in Chicago, we don't hear as much about Stratford because they don't collaborate that much with American theaters. They do mm. with Chicago Shakes. And so, um, so, I, so I got to be exposed to Stratford because of that. And they collaborated with uh, Shakespeare Santa Cruz with various actors that would come down, but there isn't much cross-pollination. But mm. those who know of Stratford, we know how like just, just it's, it's Shangri-La of theater. It is mm. especially classical the- theater. And so mm. it was just such a huge blessing to be able to be part of that company, to be groomed for that company was truly a dream come true. And I rarely say that. And because it was so massive and because we were all, once we graduated from the Birmingham Conservatory, we were all just like strewn about in various shows. I think that season, I don't know, the 20 shows or something. I don't know. It's so it's, huge. It's robust. It's yeah, so exactly. <laughs> Only a few of us, two, two or three of us were in the same shows of the 13. And, and so, um, And so the rest just kind of, we all were sent off to fend for ourselves. And it is, it was hard to bond. And and many actors will Mm. say this about Stratford because there is a competitive nature to Stratford because of how massive it is Mm. and because of how how it's considered by many the zenith of a career. Um, Mm. So you, it's hard. I found as, as a BIPOC, um, American, you know, identifying person, I found it hard to connect with people, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. It was because the, the racial languages, the social languages were slightly different. I did make some friends, mm-hmm. definitely. I made some friends like Rodrigo, who he and I still like text and things like that um, constantly, uh, Ijoma, there's a bunch of other people that I've made friends with and still continue to call and FaceTime with t- to this day. But, um, but I mean, it is, it's not a place where they cultivate like oneness, you know, mm. unfortunately. <laughs> well, I think it's a, kind of an elusive thing in general that I've encountered or, or not encountered rather. Uh, and I wanted to touch upon I mean, there's just a different relationship to oneness and ensemble here. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering uh, about your experiences with, with art at Harvard and Mahat and the Moscow mm-hmm. Art Theater. And if you want to yeah. share some of that. Because yeah, that's where you got you your have so much in common. We have so much in common. Ya ponimayu nebnugi poruski. I know I I, I was probably the worst 
in Russian class. I was probably the worst, but I made the most Russian friends. Like at the end of it, at the end of our term in Moscow, it was like I, <laughs> I had, I made so many friends, two of which are, uh, one was a Russian uh, student at, at Mahat. And well, actually both of them were, but one was happened to be American. And they, and I, again, I'm friends with them still, but it was interesting studying at Harvard. Um, the best part of the curriculum was the Russian aspect of it. My Russian teachers were amazing. I loved it. I loved every inch of it. Um, and I even loved the fact that my Russian teachers needed a translator. And, um, and so we had a translator for all of our Russian classes. And one of the biggest takeaways that I got from studying in Moscow was, was the mastering of something. And that is a concept that Americans do not have. Like they want the celebrity. They don't want to master mm. it. They don't want to study it. They don't want to give reverence to the root of the thing. And that's something that I loved about Russia. Like people, when they chose to do something, they did it with every fiber of their being and they did it well. And I was like, I have not encountered anything like this before. And I loved it because I'm intense like that too. Like I love to master things. I love to learn how to get to the next level of things, always leveling up, always developing myself spiritually, mm -hmm. physically, uh, professionally. I think it's imperative because a lot of times with actors coming from a dance background, like principal dancers continue to take class even when they're mm. at ABT, right? We, we even got uh, invited to the Bolshoi for a, a final dress to, wow. to watch them, you know, practice, to watch them rehearse. And, and I was like salivating. And some of my classmates were like, Meh. you know, they, they did not appreciate it at all. I'm like, do you understand that this is like, the major leagues, you know, you don't get it. You Americans just don't get it. But, um, but yeah, it is, it was a fascinating thing being in Russia and experiencing art on a different level because I was there as a student. I had my student ID, which I still have, and I will always have it. I probably will frame it. Um, and I was able to see see like operas, shows there for free. I just showed them my student ID and I could see it for free or just for like a few bucks. And like, it was amazing. And I was constantly seeing shows. I saw about like 30. And to see Chekhov in Russia was mind blowing. I saw Cherry Orchard, uh, we saw Seagull and, and just how they pulled apart the text and it was it was just like it was such an amazing opportunity to like ab truly absorb like ancient uh teachings and expressions of art and I just gobbled it all up it was it was so great that's phenomenal I it's a very <laughs> I'm hanging on every word you're saying because I studied in the Russian method I speak Russian and I've never been to Russia. I mean, my, my mom's side of the family. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, uh, my mom is Ukrainian Romanian. So I, it's, 
I've always wanted to go to, to, to Russia. It's just a yeah. very bizarre thing because when you go to a place like Central Asia, you realize how far it is from Moscow and Petersburg, mm-hmm. but how influential Russian culture still is, colonialist presence, mm-hmm. all of these things. And so, and because the theater I studied at the Ilkholm Theater, they came, the majority of them came from Petersburg. So it's even a little different Russian from Moscow verbiage. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm listening to that, I'm like, this is a little more challenging for me to understand. I think, I think in Tashkent, the sun soaks in your skin. So you have time and you're just kind of talking, but in Moscow, it's cold and everyone's like, you gotta go. Um, Yeah. So this is, this is really fascinating. I also feel very connected to what you said about uh, focusing on the mastery and the level of respect mm-hmm. Russians have for the craft. It's just a different level as you spoke about. And I think I'm still trying to f- find that bridge between worlds. I, I believe that's what this podcast is somehow navigating, <laughs> somehow navigating yeah. these two worlds. Yeah. Well, something else that was a huge takeaway for me was, was how the women the, the cis women acted. Because in Russia, there were a lot of superstitions like women couldn't sit on the ground because yes. they become barren. It was yes. very like chauvinistic. Yes. And, <laughs> and it was fascinating to me, I guess, because I didn't have to like stay in it, but I, I loved the severity of the masculinity and the feminism was like stark in ways that I hadn't experienced as we Americans are like, I'm a woman, but I'm fierce, you know? Yeah. And it was fascinating watching women use their femininity. And I feel like in our pursuit of being fierce, we have forgotten that there are tactics within within our ourselves intrinsically that we can mm. tap into as women. And there's nothing wrong with being soft. For some reason, we have been socialized to believe that softness is not a strong tactic, but it actually is. And I witnessed that in Russia. That is a fascinating takeaway uh, because I had a very similar reaction. I mean, the level of chauvinism and chivalry, like misogyny, Mm -hmm. but also I never walked home alone. Someone always took me home. I always had assistance. I wasn't allowed to lift a table. I couldn't sit on the floor without a newspaper or a cushion. Like Mm -hmm. these were actual intense superstitions, but also what you said about not subverted power necessarily, but the way the femininity is harnessed Mm -hmm. and used as a tool in other tactics besides kind of in your face abrasiveness. Not saying that, I'm not saying anyone is abrasive, but it's Mm -hmm. it's more subtle, it's more nuanced. Mm Yes. I really found that fascinating. And it's so cool that you picked up on it as well because we're how many miles apart, but it's still kind of a similar culture. Oh, most definitely. I love that. And my female teachers, one of which was teaching us uh, Suzuki and she was fierce. She was just inherently fierce, but she didn't have to like be bulky or have a six pack like us Americans are obsessed with. She she was actually quite wiry, but she had studied with Tadashi Suzuki in Japan and she was like, 
focused. And I was like, you are amazing, you know? And she always repeated the mantra of you are beautiful, powerful, gorgeous, you know? And, and to this day, I use it to like pump myself up, beautiful, powerful, gorgeous, you know? And she was constantly telling us that and just infusing everything that she commanded out of us with that. Wow, I'm even feeling the power of that through the screen. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think too, it's a different level of attention and respect to uh, aesthetic that I never encountered as much in Canadian or American cultures. The aesthetic, not only of like, like even your practice of dressing yourself for an audition. That's a beautiful mm -hmm. practice. And to take that time for yourself, for your art, for the moment, for the exchange, that's so profound. Like, yes, it sounds fun and, and empowering, but there's like deep wisdom in that practice. And mm -hmm. I found so many little rituals that contain that over there that I that I either grazed over here or never thought to look a little deeper and so I think that's one of the most significant and resonant lessons I took away with I mean there's so many they're infinite but it's honoring the subtlety and the nuances mm -hmm. and bringing those to light on stage and as a person but particularly also on stage this is wild. I, I love showing up to these conversations and I never know where they're going to go. Like I have a few <laughs> ideas, but this is so freaking amazing. I yeah. want to stay and talk about Moscow forever, but I do want to be mindful of your time. And I want to pivot a little bit to, well, you also have such a prolific presence on film and TV and <laughs> you're, I mean, your career is so expansive and you're you're this multi-hyphenate artist I mean from your podcast to your visual artist and paint your your paintings um even just the amazing work that you are doing in so many areas and I, I would love to dig into that if you mm -hmm. would like to share I mean you're even creating plays like this is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah well well I guess I'll start with my visual art I'm a self-taught painter. Um, I've always been crafty and things like that. And, uh, and in undergrad, I was very much a popper. So I, for holidays, would um, create something for my family to give as a gift because I didn't have any money to, um, to buy anything. And, and then it just like snowballed into me loving it and people loving me doing it. And so I kept on doing it and growing it and going deeper into it. And here in Chicago for some time, I sat for painters, like master painters. And, and as I sat, I was like, okay, I'm going to absorb the things that they say that they're teaching their pupils. I actually have quite a few paintings of myself now because, uh, after the classes, I would take a look and I'm like, oh, can I take a picture of that? And, and one artist actually gifted me a portrait of myself and, and she framed it and everything. She, she and I just hit it off. And so she gifted it to me, which was really generous of her. But that's something that, uh, that I love to do. I rarely do it, but I, but I use it as a means to show my appreciation for people um, I monetize it to some extent. I've had uh, showings 
exhibitions in, in Boston and throughout Chicago. Wow. Um, and have been commissioned and things like that. And then just this past year, I think like all of us, we were just our backs to the wall confronted with what's next, right? Mm. And I'm over-functioning, high-functioning person. And so I just kept on moving. I was like, I have to keep on creating. I created like a, a um, play reading club and which existed for like three months within the first uh, part of the pandemic, the mandates to stay at home, the quarantines. And I got towards the end of it, 50 actors, and we were reading a play every week together. And then that dissolved itself just because of life and all of the protests and things like that. We wanted to make room for, for other expressions to happen. And then uh, I was inspired by, <laughs> so weird. I was inspired by a birth chart reading that a friend of mine did. And she said that I was going to find, I was going to find like success and answers in community. And I'm like, what does that mean? And being an adoptee, I was like, well, maybe I should rekindle my relationship with my biological aunt. And so I did. And that just everything blew open once I did that. Like I did a PSA for the US Foundation for the Children of Haiti. My mom's the president of the board. And so uh, that's the organization that, that helms the, the work of the orphanage that I come from, uh, Haiti Home for Children. Some people know it as Rainbow of Love. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I did a PSA for them. And then I was like, we have to continue this conversation about race and all of these children in these interracial situations growing up with white parents who don't know how to talk to them about race. And that is a cardinal issue. And so I, I uh, facilitated a, a panel series and, and we got within the first installment, 9,000 views. And I was like, oh my God, okay. So how do I continue this? So that led to my podcast because I wanted to continue the conversation, continue the education for these families and allow the adoptees an opportunity, a platform to tell their stories the way that they deem fit and, mm. and really give them a path and modalities to indelible healing. And so that also opened up uh, an avenue for me to start writing again, because I do have a bachelor's in playwriting, directing and acting, but I hadn't really used it. I would dabble here and there, but I hadn't yet to sit down and write a full length play, which is what I did last summer. And because I'm gaining momentum as a director and I, I do have the power of persuasion, like <laughs> people ask me to do one thing and I'm like, well, how about this, you know? And this one, because all of my gigs just vanished overnight, like everybody, um, one director of, um, he's actually the artistic director of Paramount connected with me because they still want relationships with me, even though like they can't pay me to direct anything because nothing's happening. So he said that they were launching a, a, a BIPOC playwright series and they were going to meet a director. And I said, okay, that sounds great. Here's my play. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, 
okay. And he read it that week. And then a few days later, he emails me and says, I love it. I'm sending it to the team. And within a month, we were casting it. And <laughs> which was wild. And we were casting it and that was Pretended, which uh, debuted and is still in development this past January. And I'm in conversation with Chicago Children's Theater uh, to, to write a children's version of Pretended. Because um, I, I think it's imperative to start the conversation young. And, and so, so, yeah, all of these things kind of birthed out of intuitive just pings that I had and mm. just following the call along the way, right? And continuing to create and continuing to ask the deeper questions and just put it all out there. It makes me think of the question that you offer on your podcast um, that relates to, to courage. Where, mm -hmm. where do you find, um, I'll butcher the articulation in which you offer it up, but where, where do you bring courage or how do you, uh, sorry. I'm <laughs> yeah, where in your life can you apply courage? And everything you have just spoken about is just a complete shining light of just that. Aww. It is, there's a, there's levels of, of faith there. Like I, I'm deeply committed to listening to the impulse, honing it, heeding it, following it. Uh, but there's a major amount of faith required as well from the smallest things to the biggest. And Thank you for that uh, expansive dive into your many, many talents. I wanna unpack a few things because there's mm -hmm. so much. Uh, <laughs> I remember too, that's so cool that you're a figure model because I was a figure model for, oh. for a year. <laughs> I don't know if you had to do nude ones though. Were you dressed or nude? I, I did do a few nudes for sculpting and it was liberate, liberating because I'm so modest and mm -hmm. I grew up like severely insecure about my body and modest. And it was just like, it was a, a test, you know, for myself to just love my body the way that it is. And growing up a dancer, like you can't talk to any dancer who isn't uh, hyper, just aware of their body. And, and so it was really freeing to be able to just be naked in front of a bunch of strangers. It was yeah. wild. Did it's you do it? Did you do nude? Yeah, it was basically only nude. Uh, okay. Yeah, but there, there was, I because I would chat with the students on their breaks, but then mm -hmm. this kind of almost wall went up in between, but because they were looking at me, but as as not an artifact, but as, as they're studying me. So it was yeah. not very much like <laughs> a personable, hey, how are you? No, they're in focus mode. And I, I completely also absorbed the wisdom of the art teachers. Even if I couldn't mm -hmm. particularly apply it to painting, I could apply it to most anything else. I think that's the beauty of being an artist. You're, you, yes, we have specific focuses, but we are uncategorizable we we move mm -hmm. between mediums I think with with ease and you're a testament to that moving into you said you were direct uh, directing as well right mm -hmm. yeah and I I find it to be symbiotic just feeding you know into each thing 
I find mm-hmm. that I'm a stronger director because of my acting experience, because mm-hmm. I can empathize with the actors in front of me. I know how to talk to them. I know how to listen to them. And I also know tricks and things that directors who have who have like a fraction of my experience, whether mm-hmm. it be directing or or even acting, you know, they've never acted on a large stage before. They don't understand the diagonals in a proscenium. And I do, right? I just do. And it's interesting working with directors who don't get that. And I'm like, okay, let me let me be a director. <laughs> if you can do it, then I can do it. Power you know? of persuasion. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then I got right in there. Like people knew me as an actor. So they gave me opportunities as a director and, and people are getting to know me as a director and they're giving me other opportunities. And it's, it's just like forging those relationships. Mm. And you, you wrote, created, pretended, you also directed it, correct? Yes. You mm-hmm. were, wow. Yeah. I, well, I, to be honest, I don't know any directors in Chicago that I trust with my life. And mm. it was a story of my life. And that's how I justified it. I wanted to see a certain outcome. And I knew that I w- was the only person that could take it to the place that it needed to be. And there's a director that I worked with who has the sensibility that I do and the and the ability to talk to other actors in such a way to like pull out greatness out of them, mm. you know? Um, and her name is Dania Tamor. She, she and I worked on Familiar at Steppenwolf together and, and I think she could definitely do it. But uh, again, a lot, of, a lot of the directors out here who are a BIPOC, because I would want a BIPOC person directing it as it is a BIPOC story, um, they just don't have the, the depth of experience that I do. And so mm-hmm. if I were in New York, it would be a different story because New York is so competitive, you know, and, um, and I'm not a unicorn in New York. <laughs> it's so funny, like being in Chicago, you get a bit, uh, a bit arrogant and then you go to New York and you're humbled, you know, to your knees. You're like, oh, there's, there's another Haitian and there's another, you know, like, and they have their degree from Yale and they have their degree from Stanford, you know? And so, um, but here in Chicago, I'm, I'm the only like leading West Indian actor and the only one with my advanced degrees and things like that. And especially the only one who studied in six different countries. Wow. I think that you are definitely a New York unicorn as well. At least I would see it <laughs> as such. <laughs> I, I want... <laughs> It's yeah, your your career is just prolific and it's just so exciting to even be a witness to all this stuff spilling out of you in this conversation. Uh, <laughs> I want to I want to go back to what you said about uh, pretended and also your podcast. I, I got this off your website. It's your own quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am the expert of my own story. Mm-hmm. And I think taking that um, in every hue in every nuance uh and in every avenue like from from your your paintings to your writing to your directing to your producing essentially to your 
to your work. And I, I wanted to touch upon uh, something. I can't remember if I read it or I heard it in an episode of yours. Everybody go listen to When They Were Young, Amplifying <laughs> the Voices of Adoptees. It is phenomenal. You will learn so much, so much. Uh, <laughs> Just so much. I, it's wonderful. Uh, something that really, really, really struck me that uh, I've noticed. It's, I mean, you notice the subtle differences between Canada and America. There are some. Mm -hmm. it's, it's closer mm -hmm. than most, but there are fundamental differences. Mm -hmm. But but this, I think, extends to any immigrant story. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, kind of my husband's journey here. He came here when he was 24. Um, it's not the same situation, uh, but you spoke about honoring the story of an adoptee and their life, their home, mm -hmm. uh, through that shift into a new world. And the way you spoke about the idea that when you, you are adopting someone, you're helping someone, you're saving someone from their detrimental circumstances or their poverty or their hardships, whatever it may be, that is a very singular lens because it is. that it was a rich and beautiful life that you knew that you and i sorry i don't want to put words in your mouth but yeah absolutely i'll just jump in and say that the perception of adoption is very fairy tale centric and mm. and one of the things that i am on my crusade to do is to lift the fog of that, to lift the misconceptions, the, the uh, fairy tale quality that makes people believe that adoption is the only route, adoption is a good thing. And mm -hmm. even though I love my mom and I do consider her a soulmate, I am not pro-adoption. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not pro-adoption because people don't understand the systemic movement behind it, the systemic racism behind it, the mm -hmm. idea of saviorism. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a different mask of colonization mm -hmm. and, and, and it's a different mask of genocide and it's a different mask of mm -hmm. human trafficking. And people don't, a lot of people don't know that. And so they do believe just from the surface level that adoption is saving, adoption is giving people a better opportunity. And uh, did I have different opportunities that I would not have obtained if I stayed in Haiti? Absolutely. But did I have a loving family in Haiti that, that doted on me, um, a language that I no longer know? siblings that I no longer can communicate to uh, because of that lack of language. Um, yes, you know, and, and have to deal with in this lifetime, even though my biological mom is in Boston, I will never know her for real. I've met my family because they are, this is an open adoption, but, uh, but it is, a huge chasm, an insurmountable chasm now that I've been uh, completely acclimated to the American culture. And what you are essentially doing 
what essentially happened to me was that when I was four, and if you've ever met a toddler, four is a completely materialized person, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was four years old. I was taken from Haiti, put into California and told, no, no, no. This is your mother now. You will love her. This is your grandparents. You will love and respect them. This is your food that you will like. And this is your language that you will speak. And you want me to grow up to be grateful for that when I did not ask for it, right? I think one of the things I want to give, one of the many things I want to give adoptees is the permission to feel all the feels because there are hundreds of thousands of adoptees who were adopted into abusive families, adopted into families that did not love or honor who they are, families that adopted them because they believe that they are a humanitarian and they just wanted to get that accolade of look at my little brown child, you know, from Mm -hmm. Guatemala. And, but they treat that little child differently than they do their biological children. So that child grows up othered, grows up Mm -hmm. abandoned twice fold. And then you talk about how in, uh, if you get the opportunity to watch um, One Child Nation, um, it's a documentary on Amazon Prime that's a must watch. It's so amazing, One Child Nation. And it's about in the 70s, uh, China had the mandate to, to make sure that their, the population was controlled And so they made it law that you could only have one child and they did this overnight. And so anyone with multiple children were hiding, you know, they were fleeing China. They were, you know, trying to figure out how to keep their kids because the government would come forcibly abort uh, all of the pregnancies if you had a, a living child at that time and they would forcibly sterilize every woman. And the men, of course, weren't sterilized, but all the women were sterilized and they forcibly aborted no matter where they were in their term. So the streets were strewn with carcasses of a lot of them female, female carcasses because men have more value. And then all of these orphanages started popping up. And in its supply and demand, right? And so uh, at that time, there was an influx of adoptions coming out of China because these kids, so many of them being abducted by their government, put into the orphanages, these unsuspecting suburbanites in Utah adopting these Chinese kids, right? And, And people don't talk about that. And also they're... The, the Korean government in South Korea funded the Olympics in the 80s with adoption. People don't talk about those sort of things. And now it's a huge stain in the Korean culture to adopt because they feel so much shame about literally funding the Olympics through adoption, through human trafficking. And I have friends that were trafficked, right? They found out 
in their adulthood that they were abducted from their family in Haiti and put into their, the family that they're in now. And, and so the complexities of adoption are deep. And, and so it is not a binary thing. It is not good and, and it is not bad. It depends on the situation, but trust me, a lot of times it is not a good situation. And I am one of the lucky few. I interview a lot of adoptees and it's heart-wrenching the things that I hear, whether it be from physical abuse, emotional abuse, or their family literally having a black daughter and not believing that black lives matter. And so it's, it's those kinds of micro aggressions that we as interracial, intercountry adoptees have to reckon with. And so my podcast just addresses how do we work through this? How do we educate people so that you do less harm? Thank you for sharing. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm like, <clears throat> yeah. Thank you for sharing this now and for starting your podcast and creating the panel that ignited the podcast and for creating this community of healing, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's deeply moving. Uh, I will be sure to watch One Child Nation. I will also recommend it in the show notes because mm -hmm. there's, let's just constantly keep peeling the layers <laughs> just mm -hmm. keep feeling the layers uh, because exactly. it's an, an endless journey. Uh, I'm so, so, so deeply thankful for this conversation, for your time and energy. I want to touch, how do you move on to something lighter after, after I know, that? I know, <laughs> I know. It, it gets heavy, right? And, and to lighten it up, uh, one of the things that I like to do in my podcast is, uh, is center the conversations on, on the many aspects of adoptees, right? And uh, adoption is just one. And, and I think that through this work, I have been able to realize and amplify and illuminate all of those things that, that actually define me that aren't just adoption, right? I can talk mm -hmm. this freely because of the healing that I've done. And because I, I know that it is more powerful of a stance for me to tell and educate people than for me to crumble onto the floor like I used to do. And so there's hope in this, right? There's hope in these conversations and the conversation that you and I are having right now because the takeaways will be long lasting and profound. Mm. And that is very heartening and exciting to think about that, that the world will not stay the same. Like all of these things are dire and heart wrenching, but they are the way that they are now. And you, people like you and myself have been gifted an opportunity with our art and our voice and our strength to change that, to shift that. I have so many chills. <laughs> like, I'm just emotional wave this whole this whole time. Thank you for sharing that. I highly, highly recommend every single beautiful soul listening right now. Go check out Lenise's podcast. It will blow your mind and heart. Uh, and you'll get to listen <laughs> to her phenomenal voice even more. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite things. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, 
I want to just quickly, I usually sometimes forget this because I'm jumping around, but I have a few questions uh, at the end I'd love to dabble into really quickly. And just, this is just your first impulse, that first ping of, of, mm -hmm. of inspiration. Uh, but I wanted to ask, I don't know if while you were in Russia, if, um, or maybe this is just particular to the Ilhom theater, uh, if you encountered the the wording of the wish, like we would call it here an objective or a, or a task mm -hmm. or a goal. Mm -hmm. But in Russian, we were given the word zhelanya, which is a mm -hmm. wish. And I, I found personally that it stimulated something of the spirit. There was a magical element to it that sparked something different inside of me than just kind of, this is your objective kind of a mm -hmm. thing. Um, yeah. So, whatever you take it as wish, objective, intention, whatever it might be, what, what is that, what does that wish mean to you on stage or in life? Hmm. I would say to have an indelible impact that people learn something about themselves from watching me, like I do with plays that I love, you know, like I took away how to be soft. And I would mm -hmm. love for someone to take away how to be brave, how to be powerful, how to be intelligent. Those sort of things would be, would make it all worthwhile. <laughs> wow. Oh, I'm getting it all right now. I'm learning so much <laughs> just right now. Uh, what is a current obstacle, small or big, that you are overcoming? I am overcoming imposter syndrome. I, I have just been, and you're gonna find this out like in a few weeks, uh, I'll, they'll officially announce it, but I just got a, a big job handed to me and, and I am terrified, you know? And I'm just like, let's, okay, I've trusted the universe thus far. And let's see where this rabbit hole goes, you know? And so I, I just need to trust in my art and what I have to give and, and know that it will be enough. Oh. That is so terribly exciting. I guess the next question <laughs> is, will just be a direct uh, coordinate of that. What are you most excited about creating right now? Mm, I am about to direct the tragedy of King Christophe and that is by Amaya Cesare. And it is the story of, um, of a soldier in Toussaint's uh, army who gets elevated to the presidency, but he decides to be king. And it's about how he becomes everything they fought to overthrow. And I get to direct that and just like put all of my Haitian loving on it because it's based in Haiti and I, and it has that classical text um, language mm. feel to it too. So it's like this medley, this confluence of everything that I love and, and then I get to do it, you know? So I'm super excited. Oh man, we're so excited to follow your, your journeys. Really, we're hooked, <laughs> we're hooked in, we're ready, we're ready. Uh, I was, also wondering if you would love to share some 
of your speech for the stage with us. Perhaps if it's a little exercise, a warm up exercise you do before any of your shows, uh, mm -hmm. any any sweet little thing, we will gobble it up. Yeah, well, I love to do trills um, first with your lips unvoiced, voiced gently, and then with your tongue. And then with both. And then when you get the sound to the front of the mask and everything feels like it's buzzing, you can trill like happy birthday or amazing grace, a song that has range. So I would go. So, I love so, yeah. it. That's great. My nose is like itching, <laughs> which means that it worked. Like, which means that it worked. Forward. Yeah. The lips, the tongue, and then the voice added. That's, that's my, I'm going to come back to this and do it before each of these episodes now. I'm always looking yeah. for new things to add in. Always, always, always. <laughs> Lenise, I feel so deeply grateful for your presence here. This is a dream come true for me. Um, and I know that our listeners feel the same and we're so excited to connect with you, continue to connect with you. Where can people find you? Well, I am on Instagram at, uh, Lantuanez, L Antoine S. And then you can also find me as young adoptee at young adoptee on Instagram and then you can find me on Facebook, Lanice Antoine Shelley, and my website, www.laniceantoinshelley.com. Oh man, we're, oh, I'm excited to hear what all the new projects are and we can celebrate <laughs> with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank yeah, you. thank you. It was so much fun. I enjoyed myself thoroughly. So thank you for having me. Yeah, this is... A marvelous, a marvelous, marvelous moment. Thank you all for being here as a witness. <laughs> and we'll see, we'll see you ev everyone next time. Thank you, Lenise. Thank you, every wonderful listener. And I'll catch you next time. Bye okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me and pressing play on yourself today. If this episode resonated with you, be sure to share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. We are building the ensemble, so the more people who see it, the more rich and diverse our collective will be. If you're looking for extra inspiration, come find me on Instagram, at Serabanda. I am so eager to connect, and I'll be ready with a new task for us to explore next week. In the meantime, enjoy the process. Just remember to lead with your wish. <laughs>